passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. If you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors um, at Crosswinds. Um, I'm normally down in Spencer, um, at our, our Spencer location, and, and um, Pastor Kurt and I just switched today. Um, we moved into a new facility in middle of January, and, and uh, this is his opportunity to get to experience um, our new facility. And so um, I'm up here, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, before we do that, though, I want to just take a moment and um, kind of tell you a story uh, of um, how God's at work in our church here at Crosswinds. Um, over the last couple months, we've been talking about um, our mission of reaching people with Jesus and, and sharing ways that we see people on mission in our midst, reaching people with Jesus. And this past Sunday, we actually had a wonderful opportunity down at the Spencer campus uh, to, to pray over a couple that's in the path of obedience to Jesus's mission um, are moving to Tanzania in June uh, to, to serve on the mission field. And this has been something that God's been doing in their lives, preparing them for this moment, this path, this walk of obedience uh, over the last couple years. Um, been really encouraging to see. Um, they're actually a part of our life group, and uh, they're moving across the world to get away from us. So that is, um, actually, it's kind of funny. We have multiple people leaving our life group, and after one story after the other, it's like, wow, maybe it's, it's us. Um, that's, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Why did I say that? Um, so, so they're following Jesus in this path of radical obedience to the other side of the world. And as we're sharing this, this story of, of how God is at work in their lives, I want to, us to just consider what does what I refer to as extraordinarily ordinary obedience look, for, look like for us as well. Odds are Jesus is not going to call all of us or most of us to the other side of the world as a part of the Great Commission. And yet, this family move, or is moving to the other side of the world um, as they have felt God calling them to take this step of obedience as a form of love for those that need to hear about Jesus. And that is a step of obedience that I think all of us can take and all of us can follow as well. It might not be across the world, but it could be across the street. To share the love of Jesus with those who need it. Whether they have heard the message of the gospel and believe, whether they've heard the message of the gospel and don't believe, or whether they've never heard it, to show the love of Christ. And what a privilege it was this past Sunday um, in the Spencer campus to, to pray over them and uh, to, to look forward to how God is going to use them as a part of his mission as they walk forward in obedience. We're going to take a moment, if you have a Bible, to, to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's our text for this morning. One of the ways I, I open every Sunday at our Spencer campus as we open God's Word is just by saying, you know what, it's a, it's a great privilege uh, to, to open God's Word with God's people. And uh, I, I consider it a great honor, a great responsibility to do that with you this morning. That's true every Sunday. 
I think it's particularly true this morning with the text that we are looking at, one of the most important texts in the entire Bible. There's a handful of texts in the story of the Bible that communicate God's heart in his plan to save a broken creation, a part of God's plan that he established before creation itself was even called into existence. And these texts, they they show us the unfolding plan of God to save a broken world. So we look at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, and here we see that, that God's original plan for his creation, this creation that he created good, he created humanity with a specific purpose as a part of his plan. God created humanity with a unique role in his creation. He created humanity in his image, and he created them with an intention. And that intention is that humanity would live with him, but not just live with him, that they would also rule over his creation alongside of him. What an astonishing, wonderful thought that God's original plan for you and me was that we would be kings and queens that we would lead the rest of creation in worshiping and following the true king, God himself. Of course, if you've read the beginning of the Bible or if you just look around, you realize that that plan didn't last long. It wasn't too long until by Genesis chapter three, we see humanity no longer content with ruling alongside God. Instead, they say, we, you know what? We wanna rule instead of God. And so they rebel against the true king in this place called Eden. Eden, the dwelling place of God and man. But God's plan for his image bearers would not be thwarted even by their rebellion. And so immediately after they commit treason against the the high king of the universe, we hear the high king declare his plan to save a broken creation, addressing the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter three. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I find it absolutely astonishing that Before the forbidden fruit turned brown with age in the garden, God already announced his plan to fix the rebellion. That God had a plan, that his plan included saving humanity and by extension all of his creation. And here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we catch a little bit of a glimpse of what this would look like. That there's this enmity that's going to exist between the serpent and his offspring, the spiritual forces of evil, and with humanity. But that, uh, that enmity would not last forever because one day an offspring of the woman would come who would bruise the head of the serpent even though it would cost him much. And we're not told the specifics. We're not told what exactly this would look like. And an unknown amount of time goes by. And it's interesting if you're reading Genesis through this lens, Genesis chapter three, you look and you see this promise that one day an offspring of the woman will come and just a few verses later you get to what? An offspring. In fact, two offspring, their name are, names are Cain and Abel. And they're not the ones who will redeem 
a broken world. Unknown amount of time goes by and then we find ourselves with this other pillar text of the story of God's plan to save his creation when God speaks to a man named Abraham or Abram. Now, Abraham wasn't particularly impressive. In fact, other texts in the Bible tell us that he was a pagan moon worshiper when God called him to follow him in faith. And yet Abraham listened and set out in obedience, in faith, and God enters into this unbreakable relationship with Abraham called a covenant. And God, called, or God has this plan to use Abraham in his calling to eventually save the entire earth. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 says this, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice the end of verse 3. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Somehow, some way God has a plan to use Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. And here we see this slight unfolding of this plan of God that was first revealed in Eden of how he's going to save a broken world. Centuries go by and we eventually come to this other moment, this other unfolding of God's plan to save a broken creation. God calls a specific people to be his own, a people that are descended from Abraham. They're trapped in slavery. He rescues them from slavery to Egypt and he promises them a land that will one day be their own. And yet, this rescue is for a purpose. It is for their good, yes, but there's more than that. It's not just for their good. It is also for the good of the nations. God enters into an unbreakable relationship with this people, just as he did with Abraham, this covenant. And it says this in Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20, where we see the covenant, specifically Exodus chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice one of the purposes of God calling the people of Israel is so that they would be a kingdom of priests. Bound up in the very definition of a priest is the notion that they exist so that they can bring others near to this God. And here again, we see the unfolding plan of God to rescue his creation somehow, some way. God is going to use the nation of Israel, not just to bless all the families of the earth, but specifically to bring them back into the presence of God. And again, centuries pass. Centuries pass until we come to this morning's text, this next pillar in God's unfolding plan to save humanity. Israel has been tasked with this purpose to be a kingdom of priests, to, to bring people, these nations, to the true God. But we quickly see them fail repeatedly in this role. Rather than being set apart for the sake of the nations, they actually are acting like the nations in rebellion against the true king. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this unfolding of God's plan to save his creation from the brokenness of sin. It's not just that God is going to use an offspring of the woman. It's not just that God is going to use a descendant of Abraham. It's not just that God will use someone from Israel. This morning's text that God is, reveals that God will use King David. Or perhaps more accurately, God will use a son of David to ultimately, in the story of the Bible, to rescue his creation from the brokenness of sin and the pain of death. And that's the context as we jump into 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. We're going to see that this morning's text is essentially just a monologue from the Lord talking to the prophet Nathan about his eternal purposes and in how those eternal purposes include David. This is actually the longest speech from God that we have seen in the Bible since the time of Moses. So that's a, uh, an indicator that this is a significant moment in the Bible. We've been going through 2 Samuel and we've seen chapters of like nonstop action of things happening and happening and happening, and now we get to this moment where it's just a speech, a speech that takes place just one night. So let's go ahead and work our way through this speech as we consider the unbelievable promises that God has, not just for David, but for us as well, and for all of God's creation in this passage. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for the marvelous gift of your word Who are we that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us? God, we ask now that you would do just that this morning as we open this text, that you would speak to us, that you would draw our eyes to the glory and majesty of the gospel, that you would reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to respond to the glory of the gospel with repentance and faith and worship and adoration and thanksgiving. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, David's son, whose kingdom has no end. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that, it is in your, that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. One of the things that we've seen as we've worked our way through First and Second Samuel is that oftentimes it is organized thematically rather than chronologically. And so in a couple of weeks, we'll get to chapter 8 and we'll see that David is back at war. And we might say, well, how does he received rest from his enemies? And then just a chapter later, he's at war. I think intentionally this section of Second Samuel is actually ordered thematically which just last week we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 6 and the ark entering into Jerusalem, the ark representing the presence of God among his people. And now we have this moment where David is focused on the ark, desiring to find a place for the ark to dwell permanently in God's land because of rest. That's an important packed theological term, this idea of rest. If you were to look back in Israel's history, you look at the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua, you'll see that this idea of rest is something that God's promised to his people for generations. 
Deuteronomy, God's people are, are standing on the verge of the promised land and God makes this promise with them and says that one day they will experience rest in the land. And I think one of the most important passages, chapters for that, at least in, in context of our chapter, is Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12 talks about this moment when God will one day give his people rest. It says this, but when the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around, and then it goes on to say what will happen. God assured Israel that one day they would experience rest, but for centuries that rest eludes them. They're either at war, they're on the brink of war, or they're oppressed by their enemies. And yet now, under David, they finally experience rest. God has finally kept his promises. When a covenant king, a man after God's own heart, sits on the throne. So David and Israel, their experience rest that God has promised them generations before. Notice what David does when he experiences that rest. He doesn't use it as an excuse to live a life of excess. He doesn't make life all about him. He doesn't live a lavish life that's sold to us in the American dream. No, when he experiences peace and prosperity, what does he do? Well, we look at the text and we see that David is unsettled. He's deeply concerned with the glory of God and not his own comfort. So David finds himself in his beautiful palace and he's, he's looking around his palace and then he, he looks out the window of his palace and there off in the distance he sees a tent. And that tent inside it is the ark of God. It's the, the symbol of God's presence with his people and he makes it his number one priority as he's living in this lavish or this lavish palace to say there is this discrepancy between my life and what God's ark is experiencing and I'm concerned about God's glory and so I have to do something about it. And so David takes it upon himself to build the Lord a house, or in short, to build the Lord a temple. And I love the heart of David that is on display here because we see here from David that he's sensitive to the glory of God. He looks at his own life and he says, okay, am I actually glorifying the Lord with the way my life is being lived and what God is receiving from me? But I think just as much as me loving David's concern for the glory of God, I love even more how that's shaped by the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 12, that passage I read earlier, putting in context, talks about what will happen when God's people receive rest from God. It says this, when you worship the Lord, you shall seek the place the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go when the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. So do you see what's happening here? Deuteronomy chapter 12 says, and God's plan 
There will be a moment when God will give his people rest from their enemies, and then after that, God will choose a place in the land for his name to dwell. Now, after God gives rest to his people, then a temple will be built. So here's what David is doing. David is experiencing rest from his enemies. And as he's living in that rest, his mind is saturated in the Bible so much that as he's experiencing this promise of God, his mind is drawn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, this promise that one day after God gives rest to his people, then a temple will be built where God's name would be found. And David looks all around him and he says, this is it. It. This is the time that Deuteronomy chapter 12 is talking about. I'm going to be obedient to God. I'm going to be obedient to his word. And I'm going to fulfill the words of Deuteronomy chapter 12. David's passions and his desires are shaped by the word of God. And a concern for the glory of God. And so he goes from there and he goes to the prophet Nathan and he asks Nathan for permission. Nathan would have been authorized to speak on behalf of God as a prophet and yet significantly here, he doesn't speak for God. He just looks at the situation. He considers Deuteronomy chapter 12. He considers David's heart and he says, that's a really good idea. Let's go for it. And so David and Nathan, they have their hearts in the right place they're both right that the day is, is fast approaching, that Deuteronomy chapter 12 is going to be fulfilled. But before David's building projects can begin, the Lord intervenes. And he tells Nathan, in essence, you know what, David, David's not going to, he's not going to establish the Lord in the land. I'm going to establish him instead. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So that very night, the Lord appears to Nathan and says, go stop David. David's heart is in the right place, but he needs to remember that God was the one who gave the instructions for the tabernacle, for this tent. He gave those instructions to Moses in the book of Exodus. And it's nice that David is concerned with his own com comforts and comparing that to the glory of God, something that we should do as well. But the tabernacle was God's idea. And it's not a slight for God to be in a tent. In fact, God actually brings up that he's never once told any of his people throughout the generations as he was dwelling in this tent that he was unhappy, that they had their priorities mixed up. And so while David might be concerned or, or might be commended rather for his desire to honor the Lord, the reality is the tabernacle was instituted by God. And if you're gonna change something that's been instituted by God, then God himself will need to be the one who does it. And so David, 
I appreciate where your heart's at, but it's not your job to build a temple. In fact, I think we can also see here that David has the order wrong, and this is apparent from what comes in the next section. In David's day, it was very common for a king as a way to honor their God to build a temple. One of the first things they did would be to build a temple as a way of receiving blessing from their God. And that's exactly what David intends to do here. He's going to build a temple so that he will receive blessing from his God, and yet that's not how the true God works. We don't do things for him so that he will bless us. God blesses his people. He's kind and gracious and compassionate and merciful to his people because that's who he is, not because we do things for him and he in turn does things for us. Rather than being established by David, the Lord will establish David. Verse eight. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. So after saying this reality of you don't need to earn my favor by building me a temple, David, or God says to David, you know, that's, that's exactly how I operate, right? Look at your past. The reason you are currently the king of Israel is not because you had any merit or ability within your own self, but because I was the one who called you out of the pasture watching sheep and gave you the kingship. The reason you were so victorious in battles isn't because of your ability, even though David was skilled, but because God worked on his behalf in the midst of those. God lavishes grace on his people, not in response to building temples or doing things for God, but God lavishes grace on his people because that's who God is. And because that's who God is, we see God make incredible promises to David, like this one in verse nine. And I will make for you a great name like the great ones of the earth. God makes this astounding promise to David. David doesn't need to seek his own glory. David doesn't need to exalt his own name because God is going to do that for him. This is actually a reference back to what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's why we spent so much time at the beginning of our time together this morning about this gradual unfolding of God's promise to, to rescue creation. The promise given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, centuries before David, now is given to David. That we see the unfolding of God's plan. How will Abraham's name be made great? Well, in part, it's because God is going to do the same thing with Abraham's descendant, David and by extension through David's descendants. But there's another connection here between David and Abraham. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people and I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
So here God tells David of a promise that's not just for him, but it's for all of Israel, that God will find a place for Israel to dwell, where God will plant them so that they can experience peace and rest. As we saw at the beginning of this chapter, that is happening right now under David. Now notice this promise of the land is also given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. It says this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So again, there's a connection here with God's promises to Abraham and how they will be worked out in a new and special way to David. Just like Abraham, David's name will be made great. Just like he promised Abraham, God will give Abraham's descendants the land so that they can dwell in safety. And here we see this unfolding of God's plan of salvation, that the promises that have been given to Abraham are further described, they're further clarified in his promises to David. So God is continuing to reveal just how he is going to accomplish his promises. And that's actually what the next verse is about, this promise to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Here's another promise given directly to David using this play on words. David desired to build a house for the Lord, a temple for the Lord. God says, no, 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 that's not how I work. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynastic line. David will not establish the Lord. The Lord will establish David. This is how our God works. He's gracious with his people. So God has promised David that one, he will have a great name just like Abraham. Two, that in some way God will use David to accomplish his his promises to Abraham with this land. And then three, that David doesn't need to worry about the future of his kingdom after his death because just as God established David's throne, he's going to do the exact same thing for David's offspring. And we might say, well, how? How will God do that? And that's what the rest of this prophecy is about. It's explaining how God will keep these promises to David, but not just to David, to Abraham, and not just to Abraham, but to all of creation. In fact, verses 12 through 17 essentially tell us this, that God's promises for creation will be kept in David's son. That's what this focus is here in these verses, that God's promises, he's got promises for a broken creation, and they will be kept in David's son. So let's jump into verses 12 through 17 and see the specifics. Before we do that, I want to just take a moment and show or or talk about um, how prophecy works in the Bible Many times when we think of prophecy in the Bible, we think of it like a mountain that's off in the distance. And there's just a singular mountain off in the distance where one day it will be fulfilled. Let's go ahead and throw it. Hey, it's already up there. Look at this beautiful drawing. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I told the first service I was considering leaving pastoral ministry to become an artist. So um, that's not true. Um, 
So this is, but this is what we think of when we think of, of prophecy in the Bible, that the prophet is standing here and he's looking off into the distance and one day that prophecy will be fulfilled. It's like a mountain off in the distance and yet if you've done any hiking, if you've climbed any mountains, it's actually a little bit more like this. Let's go ahead and, and show. Really what happens when you are hiking is that that peak off in the distance is actually just a, a culmination of a number of, of, of smaller peaks and then a valley and then another peak and then another valley. And that's the way prophecy works in the Bible, that we have partial fulfillments that ultimately lead to the full, complete, final fulfillments in the Lord Jesus. We have these collection of peaks that might be getting higher and higher and higher until you finally get to the summit. And that's how prophecy works in the Bible. We have partial fulfillments of these prophecies that are nearer to the prophets, perhaps even multiple partial fulfillments of these, but the ultimate and complete fulfillment of these prophecies is found in Jesus. In other words, what looked like from a distance, looked like one singular peak off in the distance is actually a collection of peaks that ultimately leads to the summit, to Jesus himself. I call this telescoping. Uh, Prophetic perspective is another word for it. The, the perspective of the prophet, the perspective of the prophecy is one of multiple fulfillments that culminate in the Lord Jesus. Now I say all that because it helps us understand what we are about to read here. Otherwise, some of these parts would be confusing. If you interpret this passage about living forever, and when it says that, and you're like, well, this is talking about Solomon. Well, how does that happen? Or if you are interpreting this just about Jesus, and you see this talk about punishing him or disciplining him when he reaches iniquity, and like, well, that's problematic. This is, it's helpful to understand that this is referring to both Solomon, as well as not just Solomon, but the other sons of David, the Davidic line, but then it culminates in the Lord Jesus as well. So let's go ahead with that in mind, take a look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, notice this first promise here, is, or promise here is for David's dynasty that a son from his very own body will sit on his throne. It won't be a rival. It won't be a son-in-law. It won't be an adopted heir. It will be one of his sons sitting on the throne. And you look at the beginning of 1 Kings. That's exactly what happens. David's son Solomon sits on the throne. What's more, 1 Kings tells us that it will be Solomon, or it is Solomon, who builds the temple of the Lord, just as God described here. It won't be David, it will be his son who does that. David is not the one who will build the temple, because Solomon, his son, does it. But more importantly than Solomon building the temple in 1 Kings 5, 6, 7, 8, is how this notion of temple building culminates and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So if you look at Jesus, we see that Jesus is the true temple. That's what John tells us, John chapter two. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the true dwelling place of God with man. That's what we see in John chapter one, verse 14. He is the one to, who, to whom the, the temple points, Hebrews chapter nine. 
What's more, in a very real sense, Jesus isn't just the true temple, the true dwelling place of God with man. He's also the true temple builder. So if you look at the New Testament, you see that Jesus is at work building the church, not, not a building, but his people, the redeemed from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. He's, he's building them together as a temple, a dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. So Hebrews chapter, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter two says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God, as he's talking about these eternal plans of salvation, of rescue, he says, one day a son of David will build a temple for the Lord to dwell in, and that's what Solomon does, but even more and fully, that's what the Lord Jesus does when he builds his church as the dwelling place of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. God in his promise to David says that he will enter into a a special relationship with David's line, that he will adopt these kings as his sons. That's actually what we see in the Old Testament. You look at Old Testament passages like Psalm chapter two. Psalm two was written as a song that was supposed to be sung when the king ascended to the throne. It was a coronation psalm. Notice what it says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There is this special adoptive relationship between the Lord and the sons of David. And astonishingly, this promise that God will be a father goes back to his original plan for creation, for Adam, for humanity, all the way back at the beginning. Luke chapter three, verse 38 tells us in this genealogy of Jesus that Adam is God's son. And just as a father will not abandon his son, the same is true of this Lord, who with all of the sons of David, in spite of their sin, if you look at the Old Testament, you read the stories of the kings, you'll realize there's a whole lot of sin. And yet in spite of that, God remains committed to his promise because that's the character of God. He is faithful even when we are faithless. His promises do not depend on us or our character or our obedience, but depend on his character alone. That's actually the heart of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is this song declaring the faithfulness of God in spite of the faithlessness of David's sons. It says this, my steadfast love I will keep for David forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and the iniquity of the stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
I will not violate my covenants or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. What a beautiful passage. That in spite of all of the sin and rebellion of David's sons, God will not break his promises. Because his promises are not just for David, but they're for all of creation. And yes, we look at scripture and we see that God brings discipline on the wicked descendants of David. It culminates in the losing of the kingdom. And yet God's plan prevails because the line is not broken. He is the Lord who keeps his promises. This line of kings endures, culminating with the true son of David, with the Lord Jesus himself. And other sons of David have committed iniquity, but not the true son of David. And other sons of David, the Lord, just the Lord Jesus, unlike these other sons of David, is not just the adopted son of God. He is the true son of God. God become flesh dwelling among us. And through it all, through the good and the bad, God is faithful to his promises to David and to us through what he is doing through David and his true son, the Lord Jesus. There's one final part of this promise. I think the most astonishing part of all, verse 16 tells us, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. I did a little bit of research this past week about the longest unbroken royal dynasty in history and, and I found that it's actually still in existence. It's the Empire of Japan. The Emperor of Japan traces his lineage, his dynastic line, all the way back to 660 BC. So what that means is that for 26, over 2600 years, the same family has ruled over Japan. If I were to ask you, where does your family come from past the 1880s, you'd probably say, I'm not sure. I, my mind cannot grasp a dynasty lasting that long. For 2,600 years, this family has stayed in power. But that's not forever. Forever is impossible. You're trying to tell me that there will never be an uprising, that there will never be a coup, that there will never be a childless part of the family, that there will never be a plague that wipes out part of the royal family, that there will never be a competing nation that comes in and conquers and kills the royal family. Impossible. Forever is impossible unless unless there will one day be a king who is seated on the throne 
for all eternity. Unless there will one day no longer need to be a plan for succession. Unless there will one day be a day where death no longer exists. Unless there will be a day where there are no more wars. Forever is impossible unless there is a king who reigns forever. And that is, of course, the beautiful promise of the gospel. That the Lord Jesus, the son of David, will reign forever. That there will be no end to his reign, that there will not be a rival to his throne, that in the Lord Jesus, all the promises of God reach their fulfillment. And that's the heart of 2 Samuel chapter seven, one I, I hope you take home with you this morning. This promise given to David is not just for David, it is for all of us. We stand in awe of the Lord's goodness to David as well we should but don't lose sight of God's goodness to you through David. Here's the promise of this text. King Jesus will reign forever. And in his kingdom, all of God's promises to a broken creation will be kept. The promises are yes because of King Jesus. That's the heart of 2 Samuel chapter seven. As we consider in light of the grand story of the Bible, the promise that God made all the way back in Eden, that God expands with Abraham, that he clarifies with Moses, that's revealed in David, it reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. King Jesus will reign forever, and in his kingdom, all of God's promises to a broken creation you can stake your life on him because he will keep those promises through the true son of David, the king, the true king, whose throne and kingdom will be established forever. Second Samuel chapter seven, one of the most important texts in the Bible because it gives us a glimpse of how the Lord God has a plan to save and fix a broken world and those promises are found in Jesus because he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And wonder of wonders, as you look at the end of the Bible, what that kingdom will be like under the Lord Jesus, under the true son of David. We're given a glimpse of it at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22. The Lord Jesus sits on his throne and we, the redeemed people of God, sit on the throne with him. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They, his servants, will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no, and night will be no more. They, his servants, will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they, his servants, will reign forever and ever. King Jesus reigns forever and in his kingdom, all of God's promises to a broken creation will be kept. Promises that include you and me experiencing God's plan for his image bearers, dwelling with him and reigning alongside of him forever. Forever is impossible unless it isn't. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Thank God for that truth. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you reign, that your kingdom has no end, that you did not give up on a broken creation, but saved it at great cost to yourself. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.